Welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Matt Taibbi. And I'm Katie Halper. How are you doing this week? I'm okay. You? Good. I'm back in my own home. As you I can see, see I'm yeah. no longer in an undisclosed location. And um, not a whole lot happened uh, this week except I learned a new term, WAP. Wet ass P word. Yeah, I didn't know that one. Did you know Me that one? Me neither, no. And apparently neither did, did Ben Shapiro. No, very who, concerned uh, about it. Entered a whole rant about this and uh, brought his wife into it and uh, it became a thing. And yeah. I don't know, I, that was the most important thing that happened in my life, I guess, last week. How about yours? Yeah, uh, that was a pretty, pretty big one. Uh, his wife is a doctor, by the way. Huh, interesting. Yeah. And so she was the one who was explaining to him what that meant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He tweeted out, listen, guys, I fully explained on the show that it's misogynistic to question whether graphic dis- descriptions of wet ass P asterisk, 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 is impairing for women. WAP is obviously an incredibly profound statement of women's impairment, a la Susan B. Anthony. Also, I discussed on the show, my only real concern is that the women involved who apparently require a, quote, bucket and a mop, end quote, Get the medical care they require. My doctor's, my doctor wife's differential diagnosis, bacterial vaginosis, yeast infection, or trichomonas, which led to some very good uh, responses from people. Uh-huh. It's probably WAP, not WAP, don't you think? Do we get a ruling on that? Are yeah, you- Dan, do you know? Dan, our producer, is uh, you know more in touch with the youths. I, th- I think it's WAP. Here's a quick thing, though. Did anybody connect... There's this video from back when Obama was in uh, office where he's playing basketball, he's playing horse, and he hits the game winner, and he, as the ball's in the air, he goes, what? Money time right here. Money time. What? Oh! So, so was, yeah. was Obama an early progenitor of, 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 that the, term? Uh, of this term? We have Let to me, trace the, the etymology the, of yeah, this. Yeah, exactly, yeah. All right, we can move on then because lots lots did happen in the world this week. For Democrats, look, we have a we have a rich menu this week. Uh, Dan, if we could um, look at the Fox News headline here and excuse us for citing Fox, but you'll see uh, why in a moment. This is Democratic lawmaker blasts Pelosi's house recess as absurd. This is so modern. Democratic Party. It's just fantastic. So a friend of show, Ro Khanna, uh, is upset because the Democrats have decided to recess for a month, which is not, to put it in perspective, not unusual for Congress at this time of year. But this is, you know, kind of a crisis, isn't it? Yeah, right. It's kind of exceptional times. It's the end times. We're in the end times. Representative Ro Khanna, a de- California Democrat, called the House's plan month-long recess absurd and urge Congress to continue working on coronavirus relief legislation. Uh, Moving down, quote, I think Congress should be in session. I think it's absurd for Congress to be going on a break during a pandemic and a national crisis. And the essence of the story is that there's no relief legislation that's uh, in the pipeline. People are about to be cut off completely from aid and uh, they've decided to go on vacation, which is just, so Congress, so I guess, I mean, the, the Republicans would do it too, but, but. Yeah, but uh, the Dems pretend to be the party of the people, even though we should have been disabused of that notion by, uh, lest we had any hope for that by uh, Thomas uh, Frank. Right. So uh, I guess, guest. I guess Nancy is going to, Pelosi is going to go back and, and she's got a whole free, freezer full of ice cream flavor to, to spend the next month uh, sampling. So yeah. that's, 
good news for them. And then I guess the, the other news that was worth commenting on was the lineup at the DNC. And uh, this is from NPR. All it is is just a list of the people who have been invited to the uh, speak at the DNC, which I guess kicks off Monday. We were going to be there, right? Weren't we going to try to be there? In a less disease-ridden world, we would probably have a booth and a useful idiot's banner and all that great stuff. We would have been there and making memories together. Uh, And yet, uh, instead, we are in this virtual world where we get to instead watch by television figures such as Gretchen Whitmer, which is fine, Sally Yates, uh, Chuck Schumer, uh, Bill Clinton, John Kasich, uh, which is hilarious to yeah, me. Yeah, it is, yeah. It's, uh, and, uh, Republican, less people not know. Why do I keep saying less? Just so people know, Republican, yep. Right. Cory Booker, Mayor Pete, the Biden family, Hillary, you know, the ever popular Hillary Clinton. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, Barack Obama is speaking, which I, I, I actually found a little bit a little bit interesting that that he chose, but of course he is. Uh, he has to. Anyway, uh, what, what, what's your what's your take on this? You lineup? left out. You left out um, Bernie Sanders. Yeah, and 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 look, we're going to talk a little bit about this in a minute. But this the the lineup pretty much speaks to a lot of the thinking that goes on in the inside of this party. They 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 threw a bone to Bernie by having him uh, speak, but the rest of the lineup, it's basically like they're trapped in 1996 or 2004 and they are still thinking that certain electoral paradigms are really in play and they're not and uh and so they've uh, constructed basically a dream team of beltway k street insider types which is pretty much exactly what the party doesn't need to do right now although who knows maybe that maybe conventionalism is correct in this case but uh, AOC. Do we mention AOC? Sorry, I. I she. Is, I, I didn't mention her. No. Okay, yeah. Uh, I, so yeah, I, the progressives are Bernie and AOC. Right. But that lineup just reeks of uh, outdated thinking and um, probably some very poor calculus on the part of uh, of these folks. So, uh, but we're going to talk about that in a little bit when we get to the really big news of the week, which is the pick of uh, Kamala Harris as the VP. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, but. I guess Bill Clinton has to speak because he's one of the last people who was elected president as a Democrat, but uh, he's a controversial figure in this party yeah. now. And and both he and Hillary are um, major sort of bete noir of uh, virtually every kind of media outside of the MSNBC world. Right. You know? uh, and so to put them in the lineup, is almost like begging for negative press right. uh, and controversy. I, I you know, I, I, Hillary has to be because she was the last nominee to uh, lose. To, well, look, it would be it would be a major omission if she weren't on, in the in, on the list. But but Bill, especially with you know some Epstein. of the Epstein stuff yeah. and you know uh, and and really honestly some rethinking of the Lewinsky yeah uh, situation. You know, in light of sort of modern thinking on that yeah it's it's not going to be an uncontroversial thing at all and and of Mm -hmm. course and also uh, as we talked about last week he's prone to say some things that are going to try to overshadow everybody else right don't don't you think i don't know yeah of course yeah 
We should bet on what the inappropriate thing he'll say will be. Like what kind of, what will be the sub, the general subject? He'll probably chide the Sanders voters yeah, some, in maybe, some way. Yeah. There'll, there'll be some kind of scolding. Yeah, definitely thing. finger wag, yeah. Anyway, uh, just classic old school Dems uh, out of control, doing recess in the middle of a, of a pandemic and then you know, rolling out basically every centrist corpse you can possibly find. And John Kasich, the great triumph of the party is that we reached across the aisle to grab this guy who couldn't, who couldn't even attract a tenth right. of a Republican vote when the alternative was Donald Trump. Right. Uh, who also does a weird hand thing. We should w w look out for his hand thing. He has a weird hand gesture. Does and, he? Yeah. And my favorite Kasich moment, though, was when he he actually said he was like so excited that someone recognized him. He couldn't believe it. He was very unintentionally self-deprecating. Like he, he, he was, he was very, it was almost endearing. He was, he was really celebrating this moment. He couldn't believe that someone stuck around one of his speeches and uh, was excited to hear from him. Well, would you recognize him? I mean, if I yes. had to pick out him out of a, uh, a lineup for like a, a crime, I, I couldn't do it. Yeah, no, I, I would. But I, I recognize a lot of people. If there were five other Midwestern polit politicians with sandy hair in the lineup, I would not get it. Hmm. So for a Republican suck, I have a, a Trump thing. But I just wanted to first give a shout out to one of my least favorite people, Bill Kristol, who, because he's so evil, of course, is a regular on MSNBC. He and Jennifer Rubin are uh, my favorite neocons to obsessively uh, have air t uh, to obsess over the left on MSNBC. And um, he tweeted two things uh, about the Veep announcement. One was both Donald Trump's and Bernie Sanders press secretaries don't like Kamala Harris. Sounds good. <laughs> um, and then he also tweeted just three weeks ago, Senator Harris stood with moderates in the Democratic conference against the left when she voted against a 10 percent cut in defense spending. So he's praising uh, and those were back to back tweets. So he's praising Kamala Harris mm -hmm. for um, voting against the left and also, you know, standing firm against the left and standing firm against cutting the uh, the Pentagon's budget by 10 percent mm -hmm. and it's like he's so fucking entitled this guy why is he not living underground in a bunker with ari fleischer uh which is where he really belongs because of their uh role in the iraq war yeah i don't know uh but it, again this the whole thing about him being on msnbc and you know Kasich being at the convention. Yeah, it's he the, should be it, at the convention. It's the same thing. It's like this is their idea of like, wow, we're expanding the base of, of the party. Yeah. Right? yeah. No, actually, you, this is exactly who you are. Yeah. This, this, the, this is the. Right. Who you've always you know, been. You're now just the mask is off. Right. right? Yeah. No, Bill Crystal and, you know, uh, Max Boot and oh. all these other ex neocons who are now sort of drifting back into the. Right. Or Nicole, the, what's her name? Nicole Wallace. She was a Bush Wallace, uh, person. Right, yeah. Steve Schmidt, Steve Schmidt, who talks like this. And he's the one who whose idea it was to have Sarah Palin. And he said that a sociopath beats a socialist every time, uh, referring to Trump and uh, Bernie. Like, why are we supposed to listen to him? He worked for John McCain. He suggests he like handpicks Sarah Palin. And we're supposed to think he's he's a, a good, uh, you know, an expert in this area, a good source, trustworthy. Yeah, I have no idea. No idea. But that that's the again, that's the thinking of, of these folks is that they they think that, that, that this is 
the this is crossing the aisle and this is reaching out into new territory and shows the their ability to expand their political horizons not realizing that actually these are the same people that they are they you know they all they're all basically k street you know people who haven't been away from the washington bubble for 50 years right and you know they're just as uh, cut off from the rest of the country as as you are. Uh, I don't know. It's just yeah. it's just very very. Uh... Anyways, what, what what do we have for Trump? Well, for Trump, um, you know, last week I believe we did, did we mention we talked about Ariana Picari, right, who left MSNBC, and and we mentioned that one of the things she pointed out is that there hasn't been a lot of attention paid to the whole um, uh, UPS story, uh, U.S. Postal Service story. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I don't know if this was left on the cutting room floor, but I suggested that you and I, uh, I suggested that we do a, a funny, sexy segment on this. Um, okay. And we didn't get to that. But uh, Seth Meyers uh, maybe heard our cries, and he did do something that I thought was kind of funny about the Postal Service. Um, I'll just quote him. That is chilling. The president thinks he can just decide which votes count and which ones don't. Whether or not Trump actually succeeds in stopping mail-in voting is almost besides the point. Either way, he's sowing confusion, setting up lengthy court battles, and laying the groundwork to claim the results of the election are disputed, even if they're not. And then he also pointed out something really important, which is the kind of the history of this which is that the reason that the postal off uh, service is in this mess is because um, the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, which was signed by George W. Bush in 2006, uh, which demanded the UPS save enough within the next 10 years to provide pension and health care for all employees for the next 75 years. Predictably, this destroyed the post office's financials, which would otherwise be turning a profit. They had to pay for retirement benefits for workers who hadn't even been born yet. That's like going out on a first date and saying, I had a great time tonight. What do you say we go back to my place and open a 529 college savings plan for our eventual children? Anyway, it was funnier when Seth Meyers did it. But uh, and I'm reading from Mashable. But, you know, and Trump's guy who's who's running the Postal Service is this uh, corrupt businessman. And it's just it's a, it, the important thing I think about this is that Bush is often um exalted and people are nostalgic for bush and we should remember that this happened in large part because of something that bush did right it's the same theme we're back to the same theme again right yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah just be, before we move on from republican sec we should just point out that trump's trump's tweets have been even by his standards right. uh increasingly unhinged and inappropriate lately this is uh dan if we could see his tweet about about uh, uh, Cory Booker. The quote, suburban housewife will be voting for me. They want safety and are thrilled that I ended the long running program where low income housing would invade their neighborhood. Biden would reinstall it in a bigger form with Cory Booker in charge. Uh, And then he hashtags Fox and Friends and Maria Bartiromo. A couple of things here. This is a classic dog whistle language this goes back to like barry goldwater with the word invade you know i think goldwater's word was marauders oh wow Um, but that but that concept of uh you know the sort of urban black person coming you know out of the cities fleeing to the you know the white white suburban picket fence neighborhood and and upsetting the 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 apple cart so to speak so that's terrible but then he goes on and, and and says 
essentially like not only is low income housing going to be put back in your full of these invading uh, minorities going to be back in your suburban uh, neighborhood, but Cory Booker is going to be put in charge of that. And why he picked Cory Booker, I have no idea. Like apart from him being black and democratic, I, I don't really see what that's about. It's nuts. It seems to me. Yeah, this is weird, and it's not even Cory Booker's lane. Like, Cory Booker does vegan stuff, and he does, uh, like, criminal justice reform. So I don't, yeah, I don't really understand what it is. I mean, he maybe because he was so affiliated with Newark? That's possible. Who knows? But yeah. it's crazy that, you know, that I was joking about this, that, you know, Bill Clinton, his, his uh, strategist targeted, quote-unquote, soccer moms, Right. And then the, the the cliche in 2004 with Bush was security moms. Right. So is this what, segregation moms? Yeah, is that, yeah. I think so, yeah. <laughs> That's great. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, Bull, all right. Bull, what, what? Bull Connor moms. Bull Connor moms, yeah, exactly. Jim 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 Crow moms. Yeah. So for uh, Isn't That Terrible, Dan, if we could pull up the story from the Daily Star. Uh, this is in the category of when... Um, a Gilbert Gottfried routine becomes reality. And the headline is cops sued for molesting woman's corpse in body cam vid after responding to call. An on-duty police officer has been accused of molesting the dead body of a woman who died from a drug overdose after responding to a call at her address. The alleged incident was captured on his body cam. So I think, you know, body cams were probably intended to prevent police brutality of living people uh, apparently, when he cut, got to her home, uh, he sexually molested her, quote, in, in, including, quote, fondling her breasts and feeling her nipples. Anyway, it's just this guy. I, it's just a absolutely horrible news story. I mean, it, my standards are so low. Obviously, this is awful. This is absolutely awful. But I kind of appreciate that the person wasn't alive. <laughs> I do. I mean, I, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's a horrible thing for the family. It's a horrible thing to, to go through. But for, I mean, if, yeah, the bar is so low. I don't want this to happen. But if something like this were to happen. You'd rather be dead for it. I'd rather the person, yes. Did he not think it would be captured on the body cam? Well, I mean, that's that was, that was another question that I had, which is, you know, when you're doing your necrophilia, yeah. You, you turn off the body cam. I would, one would think. Right? I want to make it clear if this had at all been like, she was, I mean, she was in, not in the midst of an overdose, right? It was, she was not alive. She was not alive. That's like, right. There was no, I mean, I just want to, again, I'm not saying that's okay, but if it had been anything like a pol, if he had like delayed, I mean, that would have been. That would have been bad. I, I, I can't believe that you're you're putting this on a scale. I'm ra- I mean, I think it does belong on a scale, though. You don't think? Uh, I actually really think it does. I mean, again, it's awful. It shows really poor judgment. It, vi- it breaks the law. I mean, it's really disgusting. I don't want it to come off as a as a as a necrophilia cop molestation apologist at all that's the that's the you know so far from my intentions but i guess it is a yeah it's really terrible for the family this has got to be a headline uh i mean no one else will go there but i'm just stating something i think it is a there is a spectrum but i want to i want to make it clear i'm against this you're against it just I think not it's disgusting. that much. No, it's outrageous. 
<laughs> it's outrageous. And I didn't come into this planning to, to say this, uh, certainly. But I... Uh, you, you didn't come into this uh, planning on a strident defense. Pro-necrophilia of, of necrophilia. line. Yeah. yeah. No. I do think necrophilia... Well, that's a different issue. What? what no, now we got to hear this. Do you do think necrophilia no, I, what? I mean, it's... It really... I guess it's if you believe in the afterlife... It isn't it. <laughs> it raises no. It raises interesting questions about consent. I really think it does. But it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. I'm very much against it. And I and I'm not gonna. I don't. You can't. You can't woke shame me on this. It's fucked up. Well, yeah. You know what? Here's where I'm gonna come down on this. I fully embrace kink shaming. This this kink or fetish. I guess it's probably a fetish, right? I am anti necrophilia. I don't want any of my friends. I don't. To a degree. I don't. No, I don't tolerate necrophiles. Necrophiliacs. Necrophiliacs. Yeah. They. I guess the guy should be. What should happen to him? I. I'm pretty sure he's going to be charged with a crime. Yes. I'm I'm going to imagine that that will. I mean, I think he. I. I. I think that most people should have treatment instead of crime. uh, Instead of jail time. But I'm not going to go out on a limb and say like the first people we're going to. Give that right to our necrophiliacs. Right. Where would you place a necrophiliac in, in, in the scheme of crime? Like, like it, it's obviously... Below the like, life people who are alive. Okay, but like, is a, nec- is a necrophiliac... Where, where, do, where does that relate to, let's say, armed robbery for you? Or... Uh, it's better than armed robbery, because you could kill someone alive during an armed robbery and you could traumatize someone okay it's let i mean it's much more sordid i would say how about an internet scammer like somebody who does like a nigerian letter scam that's but a drunk driver oh worse because again there's the potential i mean drunk driving is worse drunk driving is worse if we're look if, if you're looking at it from a harm reduction perspective which is usually my perspective right then as uncomfortable as it is to admit Right. Okay. All right. What so do you ba- think? There's a difference between their moral character. Like, I would rather have dinner with an armed robber, not while they're armed <laughs> robbing me, but I, the type of person who would be an armed robber, <clears throat> I would rather have dinner with them than a necrophiliac. Right. Yeah. Now we're getting into the whole malum and say malum prohibitum thing, right? With, you know, things that are inherently criminal versus things that are just against the law look I, martin luther king made this point martin luther king uh, was <laughs> a necrophiliac? no not at all and he was not a necrophiliac apologist or anything or down player but he made the point you know things are illegal um things can be just and illegal which does not apply to necrophilia at all there's no justice in that. There really is not. I want to make it very clear. Very clear. One of Martin Luther King's, uh, it, it's actually in, in the letter from the yeah, uh, Birmingham, Birmingham jail. jail. Yeah. Uh, basically, if you're going to fondle a defenseless person, right. you might, might as well make sure the person is not alive. Yeah, as long right? as you can't, you can't be instrumental in their death because that brings right. you back. I mean, then you're just as bad as a non-necrophiliac. Right, yes, Lester. exactly, yeah, yeah. As long as it's, uh, as long as you're happening upon right, exactly. the dead yeah. person. 
right. the defenseless dead person. No, okay. I think but it's, it's totally bad. You can't do it. Look, you can't do it. And for many reasons, <laughs> for many reasons, including that, like, you know, for the family and for the spirit that may or not may not be there or for whatever understanding people have of life and death. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's yeah it's a, especially you know what what would make it really bad is if this person believes in if this look it's one thing to be an atheist necrophiliac but if you have any spirituality belief in the afterlife in the human spirit any of that stuff reincarnation that makes it just as bad so a religious necrophiliac is worse i have zero than- tolerance I have zero tolerance for them. Zero tolerance. No, I have negative, negative uh, integer tolerance for them, whereas I have zero tolerance for the atheist. But the either atheist. way, there's no tolerance there. It's just a question of how how much anti how how much um, rage. How much rage? Yes. Okay. That's really what this is a question of. Right. Right. So, okay. And and does it matter to you what like what to what degree the the molestation? is i mean like a little over the clothes kind of a thing is that like more acceptable to you than uh, i mean if i'm being true to my convictions it doesn't matter it doesn't (laughs) again i'd rather have dinner look i don't want to have dinner with this person but if i were forced to have dinner with an armed robber an atheist necrophiliac a religious necrophiliac uh, an over the clothes necrophiliac or more than that, obviously the order, obviously, I think we've That's all a agreed, lot of would be armed robber, then atheist over the clothes, then atheist more, <laughs> then religious over the clothes, then religious more. <laughs> I think we have to organize this dinner, don't we? Oh my god, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, but I will I will severe I will I will have them arrested. Not the armed robber though. Not the armed but robber. I will feel worse for the armed robbers' victims. Right. Okay. I'm confused now, but uh, you know what? Maybe the scam uh, depends. What if someone gives over their life savings? Hasn't their life been more affected than the person who's dead? Uh well, there's F- remember there's the FDIC. So the armed robber, you know, the ba- a bank robber actually is only isn't hurting anybody. Technically, in fact, I'm for it. I think that there should be. I like that. I think it's a. I'm a Robin Hood fan. Okay, all right. Somehow they could do it in a way that made that made it very clear that the person wouldn't get hurt. Right. Okay. Yes. So, so now you're now you're back to it being difficult to figure out uh, who's. Yeah, you're right. I think I have to revise my thesis. Let's work on it. Maybe right, we'll maybe by it. next show we can get yeah, all this yeah. worked out. But yeah. you know, headline necrophilia bad. Much bad. Bad. Not as bad as but, abusing a live person. Right. But okay. All right, good. All right. So what do we have for um uh, isn't that weird? So for isn't that weird, we have Shark Week. Um I don't know if you guys know about this phenomenon, but uh it combines two things that I feel very passionately about in very weird ways, uh, which makes it weird. Um, one of them is Mike Tyson. Okay. And the other one is sharks. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you, do you know about this at all? No, I don't. Oh, really? Okay. So uh, let's have a, uh, well, first, wait, first, I got to give an update. And isn't that weird update? And I got to thank um, Jew Bear on Twitter, J-E-W-W-B-E-A-R. 
I think there's a bit of a conflict of interest given his Twitter name, but he has a uh, he 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 has an update about the bear story that we did last week, mm-hmm. um, where someone was putting uh, Trump stickers on a bear uh, right. in Asheville. So the update is that person apologizes for putting Trump 2020 sticker on Asheville Bears collar. Group says Good Samaritan reports person responsible for this sticker. Mm. So someone snitched. Okay. Um, and you know we this the which is I think important. Uh, again, bears are not billboards. Uh, is what the the post from uh Help Asheville Bears organization Hab said. Um, and so whoever they 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 said whoever put those political stickers on these bears is cruel and heartless. Hab and our followers hope to stop and expose you. So they didn't have to work very hard because uh, the person who put the sticker on the bear's collar promised not to have any contact with any bears in the future. They stated that they placed the sticker in protest of the unnecessary excessive tagging and collaring of wild bears who suffer enough through North Carolina's hunting season. So Hmm. the Good Samaritan who reported the person responsible for the sticker did so because they love the bears. No reward was paid. That's big because the group was offering a $5,000 reward for information. This is all very weird morally. There are a lot of moral questions on this episode, but the bear-friendly person is claiming it's a protest? Come on. Yeah, yeah. I I, I can't work it out. So that's just that's just updated. That was a, yes, from an isn't that weird, yeah. So, so what do we have for Mike um, Tyson for, and sharks? For this week, okay, so there's something called Shark Week on Discovery Channel. And uh, I really don't like it because it helps to normalize sharks and, and make them a source of entertainment instead of, uh, you know, uh, a cautionary tale. Um, but I still think it's important to, to show. I mean, we have to face the things that we want to change. Right. So um, I'm not condoning this show, this series. I think it's really bad. But here I just want to show a clip of uh, Mike Tyson, who's one of the stars. Shaq is also going to be taking part in this. Um, in Shark Week. So this is Mike Tyson um, and a shark. What could make Iron Mike Tyson scared? The text reads. The former boxing champion appeared on Discovery Channel's annual Shark Week. The show was billed as Tyson versus Jaws, Rumble on the Reef. After starting off in a cage, Tyson got up close and personal with Lemon, Reef, and Bull Sharks. Be ready. Look, she's coming behind you. You got it. I have to say that yeah. Mike, Mike Tyson underwater is a lot less fearsome than he is out of water. Yeah. Like if, the, if the shark was out of water, I'd really have my money would be on Tyson in that affair. He threw up before the final dive, but he said his experience was wonderful. Uh, I think it's also weird that the scientists are like, that was awesome when he's like punching a shark in the nose. Well, he just grabbed it by the nose. I guess. I was waiting for something a lot more intense than that. I mean, you know. For... It was kind of disappointing, right? But yeah. what's, what's weird is that I, in the midst of this, and this is probably the goal of, of Shark Week, is that I was I found myself a bit susceptible to some pro-shark, shark-aganda. So apparently there's a thing. Uh, oh, that's horrible. It's horrible, right? Where that could go on. Isn't that terrible? The shark can, so sharks often have their fins cut off while still oh, alive. God. They are tossed overboard. The shark can no longer swim, so they sink to the ocean floor and die slowly. Shark fin soup must be banned, and we must treat animals better. Retweet if you agree. Uh, I retweeted that, which is a big deal. Right. Yeah, because you were, you were crossing into a sort of pro-shark territory. 
Yeah. For yeah. The first time. I mean, no matter what I think of them, I don't think that they should have their fins cut off. Right. And that is a cute looking shark. And I didn't Unless think that they're dead happen. already. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. I, and look, if you're going <laughs> to you either. And here's the difference between a shark and a human. If you're going to do that, I'd say just kill the shark. Right. But I don't you know what? This is big for me. I'm very scared of sharks, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to let do you them eat live. shark. No. And I oppose no? shark fin soup. No, I don't eat shark. You know what? I'm I am a shark ally because I don't eat shark. That was weird. So what, let's 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 uh, I guess move on to talk about the stuff that happened this week. Right? Yeah. Besides the Shark Week stuff, you mean? Besides the Shark Week stuff, although it it, it probably intersects somewhere. Oh shark yeah. Shark Week. I mean, Mike Tyson, otters, Kamala Harris. There's yeah. probably necrophilia. That's long the big the tie that binds. The tie that binds, right? Yeah. So let's let's get into this. Obviously, the big news. Uh, Kamala, Joe Biden picks Kamala Harris, which is instantly comic on like 19 different levels, uh, beginning with the fact that the, the thing that most people know about their relationship is this moment. Uh, Dan, if we could look, <laughs> let's go to the videotape. We have also heard, and I'm going to now direct this at Vice President Biden. Um, I do not believe you are a racist. And I agree with you. When you commit yourself to the importance of finding common ground. But I also believe, and it's personal, and I was actually very, it was hurtful to hear you talk about the reputations of two United States senators who built their reputations and career on the segregation of race in this country. And it was not only that, but you also worked with them to oppose busing. And, you know, there was a little girl in California who was part of the second class to integrate her public schools. And she was bused to school every day. And that little girl was me. My favorite part of that exchange was that this was already on sale. Right. Uh, Dan, if we could look at the The this little girl was me merch. So the the, that little girl was me t-shirt was ready to go. It was on storekamalaharris.org uh, for that moment. That was teed up. Uh, and she made $2 million in less than 24 hours, which is awesome in itself that this yeah, like, is good. Yeah. This she tactical, should be the treasure. Her campaign was flagging at this, at this point. She briefly ascended in the polls after this moment, essentially by calling the, the ostensible frontrunner a racist. And you know, made money off of this uh, impromptu right. com- commentary that was so planned that uh, that they had a T-shirt ready to be sold for it. And this was the basis of their relationship uh, throughout most of the campaign, right? I mean, like, and, and essentially this catapulted her up in, into the polls for a little bit, and then she receded pretty quickly after that. But right. how funny is it that this is the person, I mean, we we often have the phenomenon of, former political rivals ending up on a ticket together. But I can't remember a time when there was something like this. When she's saying, you know, I don't think you're a racist, but But, uh, that's a that's a pretty heavy duty political accusation right there. And and, you know, for for that to be first of all, it was an appallingly, uh, you know, uh, cynical thing for Harris to do. Uh, I, I thought at the time, um, I mean, not that, not that Biden's record doesn't need some examining, uh, Yeah, right. Totally. but, but I think the, 
the degree to which uh, it was not a deeply felt emotion on her part is now being revealed, right? Because she's now willing to be, she's, she's going to be singing Biden's pra- praises for the next months and perhaps years. The relationship between Harris and Biden politically is fraught. It, it's already fraught. They've, they instantly have given the Republicans an ocean of material to work with. And more than that, for me, this just represents, it's like, the thing is, you just couldn't get a better example of sort of centrist democratic thinking. I mean, this is absolutely perfect to me. If you go back and look at the beginning of uh, the primary race, you know, way back a million years ago at the outset of 2019, Every pundit in America was uh, tripping over himself or herself to say that Kamala Harris was going to be, you know, a force to be reckoned with. They all were talking about what an ideal candidate she was. And it's because uh, these people who sort of live in Washington and only talk to each other, for them, politics is all about these superficial markers that they think have this sort of magic effect over the electorate. So they're doing the math in their head and they're saying, she's a prosecutor, so she's tough, but she's also right. black. So we're, we're going to get that whole thing. And, and so she's a perfect candidate. She, she, you know, we, we get the identity politics thing, but she's also somewhere in this, you know, in the center, she's tough on law and order issues, but you, they leave out the, the part where if you listen to Kamala Harris speak, or if you ask people what they think of her after, after her, events she's she was just a terrible candidate she, she just didn't didn't uh, lend herself to audiences very well and that part of the equation was completely left out this, in addition to the fact that her politics were i think repugnant to a lot of democrats particularly like liberal progressive right. democrats you know, that part was completely left out and way back when we could we could already see that you know, there was going to be this dream team matchup. I think a lot of people were saying probably the Democrats have in mind that their dream ticket is going to be something like Harris and Buttigieg or Biden and Biden and Harris or whatever it is. And we, we end up with that. And they just haven't learned anything from their actual electoral experience right. of the last few electoral cycles. Yeah. Between that and not putting Medicare for all into the, um, into the platform... Uh, they're just like totally, sp- I mean, they're not even pretending. They're not even pandering. They're not even going through any, I mean, that's a perfect opportunity, the Democratic platform. It's literally non-binding. And to not make that an aspirational goal. I mean, I, I interviewed Rokana and he mentioned how, look, like even Joe Biden, he doesn't have to run on it. He doesn't have to support it. Why can't the Dems just put it in their platform um, as a kind of symbolic concession? Um, but they don't... Or- or even just as a, an, you know, a pandemic measure. Yeah, right. right? Yes. You know, like we're, we're going to do this for now because everybody needs medical care and, you know, we're in right. a national emergency. Why right. not say that? Well, that's on a policy level, right? But I'm, I'm just saying, but you're saying even on, an, on a symbolic level to do it that way? Sure, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, but, it's just like, it's a total fuck. I mean, and people are mad and burn. I mean, uh, people are surprised that Bernie congratulated Harris and Biden I'm like what of course he was what do you expect he's gonna like say like blow up the system now 
Right. Um, yeah, exactly. I mean, they were, it was awful what they did to Karen Bass and uh, Chuck Todd is, is a total red baiter. And, uh, you know, remember when I, I of course, he, he should go down in history as telling Bernie Sanders that he would be hammered and sickled by the right if he were to win, which is something that Bernie's response to that was brilliant and totally like correct. And he said, well, I expect that from the right. Uh, I don't expect it from the media. Meaning, like, that's all that they did. That's all they did. They pretended that these things, like, did Chuck Todd ever say to Biden, well, obviously you're going to get um, slammed for the hunt, for what happened with Hunter Biden, with your right. son? They never yeah. do that. And no. they, oh, and, jo- and Joanne Reed also. And, you know, Chris Matthews' this fear that, that Bernie Sanders was going to have people execute in Central Park. I mean, that was refreshingly overt. But you get that whole thing with jo- Joanne Reed also. Like, we haven't seen the attacks on him yet. We don't know how that, they'll play. This this total BS. I, I never know if they actually believe it or not. I don't know if they believe it or if they know that they're being dishonest. But conflating strategic analysis with their actual ideological preference. Um, and so they did this with Karen Bass. They went after her, who was a progressive, and they went after her for lots of things. They went after her for having gone to Cuba when she was 19, um, calling uh, Fidel Castro jefe and comandante. And uh, saying a nice thing about a, a U.S. Uh, communist, I think, speaking at his funeral, as if like Susan Rice's involvement in Libya or Iraq were, wouldn't be liabilities. Right. Yeah. I, I would tend to agree that in a general election that Susan Rice's liabilities would probably be less than than Karen Bass's. Yeah. But but uh, I mean, my, my take on this is a little different than yours, I, I think. What, what the Democrats often do is they, when you talk about their strategic inclinations versus their, their political inclinations or their ideological inclinations, they often uh, have those, those decisions that they have to make and they end up making neither decision. You know what I mean? Like what they end up doing is they, 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 they take the fork in the road uh, between, uh, between whatever they, uh, they, they claim to stand for and whatever they're strategically trying to accomplish. So here, for instance, this is very on brand what they're doing, right. like p- picking, picking, picking uh, Harris is going to make all their donors happy. It's going to keep all the people who currently have jobs in that whole legal, political, lobbying, uh, advisory complex in Washington. They're all going to stay employed. This is sort of perfect uh, for, for that whole mechanism. But does it really help? them get get elected is is this really the best choice for for helping biden win the election which i think he probably will anyway but but the what exactly does kamala harris add like in you could argue that maybe it helps with black voters and i'm not sure that that's true if they were really trying to uh, do something with the vp choice that would help his chances of winning i think they would go in one of two directions they would either go very progressive, right? So they would get more enthusiasm, like rally the base with somebody either like Bass or somebody in the Bernie sphere, or they would go completely in the other direction. And, you know, don't worry about the identity politics, um, you know, pick somebody with a military background, or I, I, I just feel like this is a, a decision they made to make other people in their circle happy right. and i'm not sure how effective it's going to be in addition to the fact that i you know like her politics and her record as a prosecutor are are not that great 
Right. And then uh, the question, of course, is what are, is one to do? Like, are we allowed? We being like the left, I guess that's anti-Trump. Like, are we allowed to uh, criticize uh, Kamala Harris, point that out? I mean, everyone is, is trying to say, you know, you have to support this team to get rid of Trump. But I do think that, you know, there is the argument to be made that pushing these people to the left actually makes them more electable. Yeah. Well, I always thought that the, at least the 2016 version of Bernie was the direction that the party should have been choosing. And we talked about this with Thomas Frank last week, that if they had gone back in that kind of traditional FDR direction of being the party that represents, you know, the 99%, right? Like that's, that's where they should have been politically. And they've repeatedly made the decision not to do that. They, they over and over again choose candidates who are acceptable to corporate donors and to their, to their wealthiest backers within the party. You know, Hillary Clinton was sort of the perfect candidate for those people. Joe Biden is basically the same person, except he's, you know, he's got a little bit of a different background than Hillary, right? So he comes across right as a, more as more of a you know a middle class person right um, but politically they they've never made that decision to go back to being you know that that kind of a party and and this decision with Harris just continues the rationale of remaining this kind of elite focused right organization feels and, like yeah and also she will be vulnerable to Trump because uh, I mean anyone is obviously but like he really goes after hypocrisy and inconsistency, which is why I think that Sanders, I mean, was always the most electable against him. That's, I mean, that's up for debate, but that's my personal view. Um, besides, if, I mean, I obviously like Sanders, but I also always thought that he had that, like, the best, um, was best positioned in terms of that. But, um, you know, just reading from uh, Nick Taylor's uh, Nicola on Twitter, uh, she has this thread that was from June 30th saying why you shouldn't support Kamala Harris for the upcoming 2020 election. I just thought I'd share some of those is that because it goes over some shady stuff she did. Um, Supported a law that forces schools to turn undocumented uh, students over to ICE, separating them from their parents. Uh, Supported and funded a bill that would criminalize truancy, disproportionately harming single parent households, the poor families of color and homeless mothers. She, you know, brought charges against a single homeless mother of three who was working two jobs because her children were truant. Declined to prosecute Stephen Mnuchin after his bank's predatory lending and foreclosures fraud broke the law over a thousand times and ruined the lives of thousands of homeowners. And of course, he later donated to her campaign and became Trump's Treasury Secretary. Went after uh, disproportionately black nonviolent cannabis users. Stopped the release of a man serving 27 years to life after being wrongfully convicted of possession. Yeah, ignored civil rights groups that tried to get him released. And when he was released, then brought him back to court for a crime he didn't commit. Um, didn't want to reform California's three strikes laws. Which are terrible, by the yeah. way, but yeah. Voted two different times to block federal fundings for abortion. Supported Trump escalating war in Syria. That's not surprising. Uh, voted to give Trump increased military spending. And then there's that really scary video of her mocking 
the people who say build more schools, less jails. Did you ever see that? And I have really just two two really super quick things. Uh, Dan, if we could look look at that uh, Boston Globe story, which has a great headline, by the way, it is per- perfect political pundit headline. Okay. The reason Kamala Harris was a bad presidential candidate is the reason she could be a good vice presidential candidate. And if you scroll down, preparing for a run for a president, uh, Harris became the first senator to co-sponsor Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All bill. Once she ran for president, she dropped her support and came up with her own bill that was such a mind meld of moderate and progressive takes that even she struggled to explain it during debates. But that's history. Now what Biden requires in his running, in his running mate is someone who is politically flexible uh, and someone with whom he has few areas of fundamental disagreement that Donald Trump uh, that President Trump can exploit uh, the way there would have been if, say, Elizabeth Warren were the choice. And here again, we just get into really quickly the essential inability of pundits to understand how all right. this plays with ra- actual voters. Right. Trump is already the first word that he settled on, and I don't think it's his best work, but his no. his his, uh, his moniker for for Harris is uh, phony Kamala. Right. Right. And why is she phony? Precisely because. She can't even explain her own position on Medicare for all. Right. She attacks Joe Biden as a racist, then goes and becomes his running mate. Uh, this is exactly the kind of stuff that does not play well. And yet to the the pundit, like this is what's going to make her a great candidate is the fact that she, you know, she's she's malleable and she she's willing to do the politi- politically expedient thing for the sake of winning, I guess. But they don't understand that in this environment that actually doesn't go over very well. So there was right. that. I get what they're saying. Um, it's also a little scary because um, it, there's a lot of potential for, I guess, pushing her, but I also am skeptical that the left has any real power. So she is kind of a blank slate, I think. Almost like Trump. She'll like go wherever the wind blows and whatever is deemed politically expedient. She's not particularly ideological, though I guess you know she is beholden to corporate interests, which is great, no matter what. But I also think that, you know, people don't they over always overestimate how good she is in debates. I don't think she's that good in debates. She's good at prepared statements, but not responding. She was a disaster as a candidate. She 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 has. And this is this is going to this is going to come out. She's she's quick enough and she's able to think on her feet. But her problem is and this is something it it just sounds like a. Uh, a conventional wisdom observation but but she doesn't have the ability to make people feel that that she's a warm relatable person right she she lacks authentic authentic. there's like something missing with her with her her salesmanship of her own sort her own story it doesn't she doesn't connect with crowds right right and but you know again you're you're gonna see a thousand stories talking about what a great pick she is from all the same people who thought she was going to be a a great challenger for the nomination when she didn't even really come close to getting elected or ever ever being a factor in the primary race because she was really she was overwhelmingly rejected by democratic voters uh precisely because you're just there just isn't a whole lot there to for for people to grab onto as what is it about this person that I really like uh, or can support because it's not that she's principled principled or progressive she she really recoils from that she she embraces that uh, Clinton-esque style of politics that basically says I'm I'm gonna master the, the 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 subject matter 
enough right. to make to make you think that I have a sensible position in this, but uh, yes, but I don't. Smart, she is smart. It's right. also a lot of focus group based policy and decisions, um, like Clinton. And you know, the other thing is, you know, I when I when I say, and I assume for you too, but you know, when I say she's not warm or relatable, um, and this is not a sexism issue because neither was Gore or no, Kerry. yeah, this is Gore. Yeah, it's exactly yeah, it's the exactly same the same thing as Gore and Kerry. They but keep this picking this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these out of like these um, aloof seeming, out of touch, not folksy, and again. That is, I don't like Biden. I think people know that, but he is good at selling that. I mean, I think some people read it as bullshit, but like he's good at seeming folksy and authentic. I mean, he flip flops. He is, he's a total liar. He's a pathological liar. But, uh, so again, this has nothing to do with my dislike for, for Harris. It's just a thing about her. No, it's, but, but it fits. It's again, it's, it's a class yeah. thing. It's, it's this group of people in DC who've been yeah. making decisions forever and to them, this is their kind of person. And so they're deeply impressed by this kind of person. But that, right. this person doesn't relate to the ordinary. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, you put Kamala Harris in, in the middle of, you know, some small town in Minnesota right. or, you know, even you know, it doesn't matter where it is. Like, she just doesn't have that thing, you know, right. and, the, and they keep making this decision for to opt for people like that, you know, with Gore, I think was a classic example. Uh, Carrie, same thing. Yeah. You know, that's the kind of stentorian, aloof, right. uh, pseudo-intellectual, credentialed, but- right. Very but, experienced. Okay, also there's a really amazing uh, clip of her on the Colbert Report where, did you see this, where he asks her about how she could go after Biden? No. I thought, can we, sh- can we show this, Dan? Um, we know we have to, we need a new leader in our country. And I could go on and on down the list of why this is probably the most important election in our lifetime. Well, from, the, from an outsider um, who uh, d- doesn't really know both of you very well, mm-hmm. your relationship, which seems like a good one now, uh, really does bring home the, you know, the, 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 uh, the old phrase, politics makes for strange, uh, let's say, partnerships. Because in those debates, you landed haymakers on Joe Biden. I mean, they were his teeth were like chiclets all over the stage. And now I believe you that you're fully supportive of him. How does that transition happen? How do you go from being such a passionate opponent on such bedrock principles for you? And and now you guys seem to be pals. It was a debate. Not everybody landed punches like you did, though. It was a debate. (laughs) So you don't mean it. It was a debate that the whole reason, literally, it was a debate. It was called a debate. I understand. Travel to the debate. There were journalists there covering the debate where there would be a debate of differences of opinion and issues. I am 1,000% supportive of Joe Biden, and I will, again, do everything I can to make sure he is elected. And I I 100% believe you. I was just asking the transition after the debate, perhaps back to the handshake. Uh, You know, I I mean, in all seriousness, I've known Joe a long time, and I care care about him deeply. And... um, (laughs) She was just helping him check his, his white privilege, I bet. (laughs) <laughs> that, that's that's like the old uh, Saturday Night Live uh, bit about Hillary Clinton, where they were doing having somebody imitate Hillary, and 
Hillary was saying, I think the American people have always known that my position on the Iraq war is insincere. That's funny. Right. right? That's so, really, yeah. But she's what she's essentially saying, like, it, it was a debate. I was full of I was lying. I know. Why? And she's like, they called it a debate. They went to cover as if that's the issue, as if Colbert missed that it was a like, debate. She's she's breaking into a smile at the at the mere suggestion that she, that uh, we might have taken her her attacks at face value as right. though she was exactly. being serious. Right. Cra- craziness. She's like, it uh, was a debate. I sold T-shirts off of it. Right. Can we just watch one more video that's one minute? It's just so perfect. It's like all the contempt that that Kamala has for any progressive causes. We all have these posters in our closet that is attached to a stick that we sometimes will card out when we're talking about criminal justice policy and those statistics that you first heard. Build more schools, less jails. Build more schools, less jails. And we walk around everywhere. Build more schools. We protest. Build more schools, less jails. Put money into education, not prisons. There's a fundamental problem with that approach, in my opinion. And it's this. I agree with that conceptually. But you have not addressed the reason I have three padlocks on my front door. So part of the discussion about reform of criminal justice policy has to be an acknowledgment that crime does occur. And especially when it is violent crime and serious crime, well, there should be a broad consensus that there should be serious and severe and swift consequence to crime. Actually, it does address why you need three padlocks on your door because basically every study shows that kids, yes. kids, kids who don't stay in school and don't get good educations end up in the criminal justice system quickly. Right. Uh, that's, you know, basically everybody who's, been involved with liberal politics going back right. decades as it's one of the cardinal principles of the entire idea so for her to say that is is nuts i mean i get the law and order argument that she's that she makes as a, as a former uh prosecutor but yeah but also how hard is it to say, if you haven't addressed that that's on you like as you said it's very easy to make that argument because it's statistically backed no wonder bill crystal likes her I know it's crazy. So um, our, our guest this week is uh, the mayor of Holyoke, Massachusetts, Alex Morse, who's also running for Congress against one of the most powerful Democrats in the country, Richard Neal, who's the uh, chair of the Ways and Means Committee and the, uh, believe it or not, the number one recipient of corporate money in Congress, that's Democrat or Republican. And he uh, made his way into the headlines as this, this past week or so through uh, kind of an unfortunate situation where the College Democrats of Massachusetts wrote first a letter to him and then they released one to the media, essentially accusing him of sexually inappropriate relationships. They didn't say that uh, they were non-consensual, but, but essentially they were saying he, because he taught a course at UMass and had sex with college students, that that was somehow inappropriate and um i don't know katie i mean did, w- what's your feeling about about this case i mean you wrote by the way a really great piece on it uh that i recommend on your Substack uh called the new puritans new, new puritans yeah yeah um i thought that like the letter sounded really suspicious there was a lot of vague language a lot of like passive voice a lot of cobbling together different allegations um 
I think that, you know, he didn't violate any policies of, and, and there are a couple things. Like, this isn't just an instance of, well, we have a choice. We could go with a guy who's really corporate and selling people out and throwing people under the bus. Or we could go with a guy who's really progressive on policy, but he has some kind of personal issues and maybe he hasn't. It's not that. It's like they're really the, the claims about him are not substantiated. And th there's a reason that the claims are so vague. And that's because there isn't one particular thing that they can really uh, accuse him of. Um, he didn't have any relationships with any students. He didn't. Well, he, he did have relationships. I mean, of his no, students. No, sorry, sorry. Not, yeah. With any of his own students. He yeah, did not have exactly. any relationships with any of his own students. He was, what, an adjunct? Um, I don't, he's in his Something 30s. Something like that. He, and, taught, he taught one course. Yeah. Um, he, so he didn't violate any policies. Um, they make it sound like he was hanging out at these, like, college Dems, young Dems events all the time. The Intercept did a really good piece on it, and it turns out that they're, you know, this re this letter didn't even represent most of the students, most of the members. Like it seems like one person or a couple of people wrote it without checking in. And and, and that that person had was uh, acquainted with Neil, yes, uh, right. who, who teaches a journalism course of all things, right? And, uh, and that he himself has political like his interest in in maybe working for him and had said positive things about him. So there's kind of no there there. Right. Like the allegation is that he, on the one hand, um, went online and dated people who were students at um, a university that he taught a class at. And the other allegation is that he hooked up with someone. But that person and this is like my favorite part is that the person didn't know he was mayor, but he also abuses his power. So it doesn't right. even make sense. I mean, you, you, what do you think? You, you looked into this. Uh, well, so you got really familiar with the content. To, to, yeah. To me, this is a, this is like a, a theme that has been driving me crazy for years now, which is where you have the sort of corporate Democrats on one hand, and they are facing a, a, a real challenge from some kind of progressive, uh, you know, populist type uh, figure. And what they do is they they adopt sort of woke language and woke tactics to try to undermine the progressive challenge uh, challenger. And in this case, it's really hard. I mean, we can't say concretely what exactly is uh, you know was the genesis of this entire thing, but the the argument that they make that there was something inappropriate here was based on a concept that. Um, you know, you, you will hear a lot coming from sort of wokesters on, on the internet with, with this concept of a power imbalance, right? right? Where, they're, where they're basically, and, and the, the language in this thing was, was incredible. From the, here's, from, here's a section of the letter that I thought was amazing. It talks about how um, Mayor Morse is a widely admired and well-connected gatekeeper to progressive politics in, Ma in Massachusetts and nationally, which makes the task of refusing his advances fraught for college students who wish to enter progressive politics themselves. The mayor's positions of various positions of power create a significant and undeniable power imbalance between himself and the college students he sought out. Where such a lopsided power dynamic exists, consent becomes complicated. And so they're trying to redefine the whole concept of 
consent between adults by talking about power or personal power, which is an incredibly, first of all, incredibly difficult thing to, to define. But you'll hear this, you'll see this on Twitter where somebody will say that a person with a lot of Twitter followers shouldn't dunk on someone. Yes, stick their followers. Yeah, and somebody who has few because like the power imbalance yeah. is there. Um, you know, but this idea that somebody who has a job, I mean, look, he's the mayor of Holyoke. He's not like the, you know, the Sultan of Brunei, you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's, he's, he's, he's an up and coming politician, but he's not. The notion that that person is too powerful to even respond to negatively or to ignore um, is crazy. You know, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a lunatic concept. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard to parse. I don't know how, what you think about it. I, I, I can't separate how much of this is just cynical politics from a bunch of, you know, scheming corporate Democrats and how much of it is coming from sort of the young woke left. I don't know. I think it's a cycle, honestly. I think that it's a a, there's a very cynical, intentional smear campaign that is ironically kind of basing itself, uh, feeding off of uh, homophobic tropes. Of course. um, Of pathological um, predatory behavior. And but while at the same time, kind of trying to appeal to people's sense of solidarity and me too orientation and you know uh supporting survivors all of which i support but i think that it is an extreme like weaponization hijacking and um it's interesting because i've seen this happen a couple times with like straight men or straight white men and i think that there's kind of like an op- there's a sometimes a very disturbing i think almost um, open embrace of like well whatever that's what they're like oh male straight white male tears like boo-hoo like you know this is just the result of this is what happens when you're trying to you know build a fair society and you know this is the cost of you know the me too which is a great thing and and i also believe in the principles of me too and of listen to women and believe women which is just for shorthand uh is basically the idea that by default you believe the woman um not not regardless of evidence but that's like the default because there's so many barriers to coming forward and listen to women is that everyone has the right to tell their story, right? Um, But uh, I do think that sometimes people kind of just openly are okay with throwing people under the bus. But this is interesting because you can't really say that. I mean, I'm sure people are talking about his being cis and and white and male, but there is at least the, (laughs) the queer identity, which complicates it somewhat. You know what I mean? It's not like totally the, the, um, the man against the underdog. It's a bit complicated, but I, I do think it's a combination. I think there's some people who are just um, not really don't think critically. Um, I think some people have their hearts in the right place, um, but are are kind of being being a little sloppy. And I think it is a dangerous, slippery slope. I really do. And um, I don't think that means that you have to throw out the concepts, uh, the orientation of me too. And I think that if people want to live by these rules, it's not going to be good for them either, because really no one's immune to these kinds of um, allegations. And I think there's something similar to this and the Shahid Buttar case, which we can get into another time. It's a bit, yeah. that one's a bit more complicated, but what's similar is there's a kind of like lack of, it's again, it's a cobbled together thing. 
um, a combination of different dynamics shared, not even shared by one person. The whole thing is just nuts. And anyway, we're, we're really um, glad that we're going to get to be able to talk to him because he's, uh, he's actually also having seen him on, on TV and, uh, and, and talking about some of this stuff. He's a very impressive young politician. In fact, he's somebody I would think, you know, is going to have a future in this party, hopefully. Right. Uh, yeah. So without further ado, let's uh, let's talk to Mayor Alex Morse. Welcome to Useful Idiots, uh, Mayor Alex Morse, uh, who is also running for Congress in Massachusetts, who's in the news a little bit this week. But uh, we, we want to talk uh, first about your political career because you have really one of the more remarkable political stories. Uh, reminds me a little bit of somebody uh, uh, who I knew a long time ago, Dennis Kucinich, who started at a very young age in politics. Uh, you were you ran for mayor. How old were you? You were 21 when you ran. Is that right? Yeah, I was, uh, I was 21 years old. I was a senior at Brownsville, and I had just gotten back from studying abroad in Dominican Republic when I launched my candidacy for mayor against the 68-year-old Democratic incumbent. And, you know, people told me to wait my turn, and you don't run against other Democrats, you don't run against incumbents, and no one in my family had ever gone into politics, ever really gotten part of a campaign, and we just ran the city's first like, grassroots campaign that reached out to voters in every single neighborhood and got elected back in, in November 2011. I was 22 and uh, became the youngest and the first openly gay mayor of my hometown. So if I remember correctly, you were on like the youth commission when you were like 11 years old or something like that. And you had you were one of those people who was always involved with student government. What were you what was the motivation to, to immediately jump into politics? from going to Brown, which from what I understand was a bit of a culture shock in a, in a different way, but what, yeah. what, made, what made you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Holyoke and Holyoke is a, it's a pretty, it's a challenging city. And I say it's a small city with big city challenges. And my, you know, my parents grew up in poverty and public housing here, both raised by single mothers. My, you know, my mom, she got pregnant when she was just 17 with my oldest brother. And, you know, dropped out of high school and, and neither her nor my father had the chance to go on to college. And they worked their entire life to move out of poverty into the working class. My dad still works at the same meatpacking company that he started at 34 years ago. And my, my mom opened up a daycare in my childhood home. And, you know, having gone through the public schools and like having that experience in a community, in a, in a community that's 50% Latino, mostly of Puerto Rican descent, and you know, realizing that some people have access to, you know, safe neighborhoods and jobs and good education and not everyone does. And I was very fortunate. I was, I, I was a student in the Upward Bound program, which is for low-income first-generation college students. And I really found my voice in high school because I came out when I was 16. And before that, you know, I did well in school, but I wasn't confident. I didn't carry myself in a way in school or in the world that exuded confidence. And I think it was after I came out to my family and the community of my school, and I started the Gay Straight Alliance, I started the city's first LGBT nonprofit, like my organizing in the queer community really made me more interested in the politics and civic engagement. And once I felt like I could be myself as a teenager, that's really what propelled me to, to I think, be who I am today. And I always had interest in politics and government and when I went to Brown, it was a culture shock because of the privilege and the wealth. And so many of my friends and classmates, they avoid their family, they avoid their hometowns at all costs. And every summer break, winter break, long weekend, I'd be back in my hometown. And I just, 
I've always had an incredible love of the city and I felt like what better place than Holyoke to come back to and give back to. And are your parents political? Not at all. Um, so my, um, yeah, they oftentimes joke, like as a kid, I was always into politics and watching the news. And I was, um, I think Dennis Kucinich, he ran in what, 2004, I think, against uh, Bush. And I remember him because I think he was a young mayor. And, yeah, he, um, he was, uh, yeah, he was a city council person at, I think it was 21 also. Yeah, yeah he was a young politics. So I always just had an interest in, yeah, my family very apolitical. I mean, the first time they went to a campaign event was for me. The first time they held a lawn sign or a campaign sign at a standout was for me. Um, and so this was this was new for them. I mean, never did they imagine that their son would one day grow up to be the mayor of their hometown. We didn't come from a political family. We didn't come from connections or wealth. And, and we're just a very real family, like working class and very real people, never pretended to be something we weren't. And with very real challenges too, I mean, you know, unfortunately, my mom, she passed away two years ago um, at the age of 56. She struggled with mental illness her entire life and in and out of, um, you know, inpatient psychiatric programs and was one of the, I mean, the best woman that I've ever known in my life and unfortunately passed away. And, and, and then just just a few months ago, too, my brother struggling with heroin addiction and passed away from a heroin overdose earlier this year. God. When I think about like those very personal experiences to me, as a person and as a professional, the impact they've had on how I view policy and, and view why I'm running for Congress and the fact that this country has a cruel healthcare system that really doesn't value mental health um, or addiction. And these are also the very real forces that brought me back to home after college that I've always been incredibly close to my family and incredibly close to my community. And I am the community that I, that I represent. So a lot of people outside New England have this this image of uh, Massachusetts as this cushy uh, uh, aristocratic place, but the, a lot of the a lot of the towns in New England, you know, I'm from Massachusetts myself, um, you know, are really struggling. They're so ex mill towns uh, who haven't really found their way in the kind of modern economy. What was the, the situation when you with Holyoke when you entered office, and what was your strategy moving forward? Yeah, Holyoke is a great example of, of sort of deindustrialization de and the impact of capitalism and globalization. And we were, were nicknamed the Paper City. We're the first planned industrial city in the entire country. And we at one point had the most millionaires per capita in the entire country in the, in the 1920s. And when I grew up, I mean, we were in the backdrop of, you know, white flight out of the downtown and in high crime, poor performing public schools, vacant paper mills. And everybody had just kind of given up on the city and resign themselves to the fact that our best days were behind us. And we just had the same people in office year after year. And so one of the biggest issues when I first ran was the mayor at the time was pushing to bring a casino to town. And I was opposed to that. And I thought it was important for us to invest in a, in like long-term sustainable economic development, focus on entrepreneurship and the creative economy and innovation. And we've been able to focus on those endeavors, the innovation based economy, but I will say also the, I was the first and the only mayor in 2016 to support the recreational use of marijuana. Number one, as a means to you know, dismantle the, the impact of the war on drugs, but also as a means for economic development in our city. When I took office, we had 1.6 million square feet of vacant mill space. And when you think about cultivating marijuana um, in our former mills, it's now occupying hundreds of thousands of square feet, creating hundreds of jobs, and providing hundreds of thousands of dollars of tax revenue to the city. And so it's another form of industry and manufacturing uh, that has become a centerpiece of our, of our economic development strategy. We've also, again, focused on housing 
and redensifying the downtown. We were once a city of 60,000 people and population dipped below 40. And so wanting to make Holyoke a city again, a place where people can live, where they can you know, have fun with friends and family, investments and parks and open spaces. And so we've done a lot of that work over the last nine years. I mean, also in the, in the schools, I mean, when I took office, only 49% of our kids were graduating from high school. And today, nearly 75% of our students are now graduating from high school. And so it's a, it's a city with a lot of challenges. And I, and I think that's why I'm running for Congress, because I mean, we do the best we can with the resources we have in a federal government and a system that really doesn't invest in communities like this. Well, that was going to be my next question. I mean, what, what, what prompted, obviously, you're, you're the congressman who represents your district currently is one of the most powerful Democrats uh, in the country. He's the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, but it seems to me that there's a theme with your career. You, you, you entered the mayorship when, and you talked about how they were kept electing the same people over and over again. What was your, motiv- what's your, was your motivation for trying to go to the, the U.S. Congress? Is it basically the same idea that they're replaying the same ideas with it and not having the impact that, that they want to have? Yeah, it's, uh, I think the district and the country is at an inflection point similar to where the city was nine years ago. And you're right, Congressman Neal is one of the most powerful Democrats, one of the most powerful incumbents in Washington, but he's not using that power to benefit the people and places here in Western Massachusetts. Instead, he's using that power to benefit the corporate and special interests that have invested millions of dollars into his campaign. I mean, when you look at, when you talk to everyday people here, when you look at our communities and look at outcomes and disparities, you would never know we have one of the most powerful members of Congress representing us. I mean, Springfield, the largest city in the district, is still the asthma capital of our entire country. Even in the middle of this pandemic, we have hospitals closing, birthing centers closing, hundreds of inpatient psychiatric beds shuttering. We still have dozens of cities and towns without basic access to broadband internet. Public schools are closing in the rural parts of our district. We have some of the worst health outcomes in the entire state year after year after year. And right now we have families on the brink of bankruptcy, getting evicted, who don't know how to put food on their table, to pay their rent, to pay their mortgage. And we have a member of Congress that isn't advocating for real people and and their challenges. And so, and really on every issue, I mean, what's the point of having power if you're not going to use it to hold this president accountable? And he failed to do that. I mean, he hasn't used his power to push for a single payer healthcare system. He's the only member of our congressional delegation that refuses to sign on to the Green New Deal. He refuses to support the Each Woman Act that would repeal the Hyde Amendment. He continues to see abortion through a lens of morality, not as an issue of health care. And right now, he is literally the number one recipient of corporate money in the entire House of Representatives, more than any Democrat and even more than every Republican. And on top of that, this is a guy that hasn't had a town hall in the district in nearly three years. And so in addition to the issue differences, we need a member of Congress that shows up, that people can see, ask questions of, hold accountable. Particularly in, the, in this moment in our time in this country, we need a member of Congress that can grasp the challenges that we have. And on every issue, Congressman Neal is absent and unaccountable. So in the middle of this primary race where you're trying, where you're trying to accomplish something very important, this issue comes up. And I, I, I want to understand how you perceive what happened. Do, do, do you think that what happened with the college Democrats, first, could you tell, just sort of explain what happened last week? Because the press reports were that, that first you got a letter from them and then they went public. Yeah. Uh, what, what, what happened exactly? Yeah. And did you have an inkling that this was coming? And how, yeah, how it unfolded to, to you, if not publicly? Yeah, so I got an email on Thursday morning signed by the college Democrats and it was 
worded in a way that made it very obvious that the intention was for it to be to be provided to the media. And we have we had expected that something like this was 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 coming, given that this story has been shopped around to publication after publication, uh, from Politico to the New York Times to the Washington Post in recent weeks. And every single outlet refused to move forward and publish it because there was no specifics and they could get no one on the record whatsoever. And so essentially what happened is I was sent an email on Thursday morning and the, the UMass Daily Collegian printed word for word, essentially copy pasted this email and turned it into an article on Friday that has now been amplified by local media to statewide media to national media. And so that led to, that happened on Friday night and it led to a number of stories over the weekend. And I mean, we live in a, in a society and in a time where headlines and clickbait dominate the news cycle. And almost as if facts and truth don't matter. And so I think it was incredibly important for, for, for us to, to number one, acknowledge the communication, but also allow people to come to their own conclusions about the suspicious timing and nature of these allegations three weeks before our competitive primary. I mean, when polling shows that this race is incredibly tight, when we had just had our best fundraising day of the entire campaign, following the victory of Cori Bush over, over Representative Clay, and a week before the debate. And we know that going up against the chair of the Ways and Means Committee and the DC establishment and the Springfield boss politics here in the district wasn't gonna be easy. And we know the power stops at nothing to hold on to power. And, it's, and I think the bigger question is like, why, why am I being put in a position to talk about my personal life and my personal sex life? I mean, honestly, my sex life has gotten more scrutiny in the last five days than Congressman Neal's record in corruption over the last 30 years. Is there a connection that you see? Do you, I mean, do you see this as basically political oppo research that is expressing itself through the college Democrats somehow or through these other organizations? Or um, is this something that when you talked about it being shopped around to the media, was that from the other campaign or do you have any idea about that? I, I mean, I will let the media and the public come to those conclusions. I think, I think the Intercept article published last night was incredibly revealing and has begun to offer a glimpse of, in the context of, of what is actually happening behind the scenes and that it was in no means an accident that this is coming out three weeks before the election. And I, as I always have, trust the people of this city and the people of the district to, to take this information and come to the conclusions that I think are important to come to. And I have no doubt that more information will come to light in the coming days that provide a whole picture as to as to what's behind this. And how did you find out uh, or how do you know that it was shopped around to other places? Did you were you told at the time like that, that there was talk about yeah, this? So or? essentially, after every endorsement we received from a national to state organizations. So to give you an example, when we were endorsed by the LGBT Victory Fund, they were notified that of, of allegations and a potential story. And I was told at the time that, hey, Mr. Mayor, they don't just want to win this election, they want to ruin your career. When we got endorsed by the Massachusetts Nurses Association, someone from the MNA reached out and said, oh, someone contacted us after we endorsed. When we got endorsed by the Working Families Party and move on, someone contacted those organizations to let them know. And so this has been percolating for weeks. And Alex Thompson at Politico reached out to someone involved in our campaign over a month ago and said he was unable to move forward with the story because no one would go on record. 
And many of these same journalists now have regurgitated what was printed in the Daily Collegian on Friday. So were you kind of waiting with like, were you nervous that this would drop or did you think, oh, it's not going to drop because there's no story there? I'm an inherently optimistic, I mean, it's an interesting question because I'm an inherently optimistic person and I have always believed in the goodness of people and the humanity of people and common decency. And and I've been through whisper campaigns and rumors and smears throughout my nine years. And I think gay men and members of the queer community in particular are are, are sort of, we are used to the over-policing of our, of our sex lives. And there was part of me that expected that this would be a debate and a campaign on issues and policy. And unfortunately, the, what, the events on Friday night and the coverage and the language that has been used in response to it has been incredibly problematic and rooted in the, you know, generations long homophobic tropes and the use of words like survivors and abusers and predators is just completely unacceptable language to be used in response to this. And I think it does a great disservice to, to actual victims. Just so people understand what the issue is, like this is not a, a classic allegation of uh, sexual harassment or anything like that, because there's no, there isn't even an allegation of an improper like power relationship where it's your own student or it's somebody who works in your own office. But they're making a broader claim about uh, a power imbalance that has to do with basically who you are uh, in the world and how that can be that can raise issues of consent. It's it's a very very strange new interpretation of how uh, sexual relations should be understood. Can you talk a little bit about what your understanding is of their complaint and what you think about that? Yeah, this has been interesting, and and, and I have to be honest, it was a very a tough weekend for me personally, um, mm, of course. for me and, and my family and the people around me. And it was, just, it was just very tough. And I, and I had to self reflect. And I also, I also got upset because like as a member of the queer community, as a gay man, internalizing a sense of shame for things that I don't think I should be ashamed of. Um, and knowing who I am and, and knowing full well that every relationship and sexual encounter I've had has been consensual between adults. Like I will not apologize for being a young, single, openly gay person having sex with other men and communicating on be a grinder or matching with guys on, on Tinder. I became, I mean, I launched my campaign as a 21 year old. I started teaching a class at UMass when I was 25 years old. And, and, and I have to, and I understand that I'm a mayor, whether I'm at City Hall, at the grocery store, at the cafe, or, or even in my bedroom. And I have always struggled with, with navigating the balance of a personal life with, with being mayor. I, I, cannot take, I cannot take the mayor hat off no matter where I am. But I've always been open and honest, and I have never had a non-consensual relationship or, or, or sexual encounter. So I'm very clear about that. You know, if... If I unknowingly made someone uncomfortable, certainly not my perspective that I ever intentionally made someone uncomfortable, but if someone perceives that to be uncomfortable, then I, I acknowledge that and, and honor that and I'm happy to address that. But this, this sort of expectation that this almost translates to saying that elected officials or young or not, this expectation that I should somehow be asexual while I'm in office. 
Because if not, there would be an inherent power dynamic in every relationship I have, whether I am dating someone who is 22 or someone that is 65. And, and that, that it's a challenging conversation to have. And I also think if you are not a member of the queer community, it may be a little more challenging to understand relationships. I mean, we just achieved marriage equality I mean, five years ago. I mean, there are very few, and we, even when you think about a place like Western Mass, I mean, you can't, I mean, maybe one gay bar in the entire area of Western Mass. I mean, gay men for years have had to resort to the internet and dating apps to connect, to find safe spaces. And so I think this opens a conversation about what a sex negative society we are as a country, that we shame people for having sex lives and personal lives. This fantasy that, that people, regardless of their positions, don't have sex and don't have personal lives behind closed doors. And the outpouring of support that I've, I've received, not just from the general community, but in particular members of the queer community that take this not just as an attack on me, but on our entire community, that if I was to have dropped out of this race, that it would do a disservice to every young person, every gay person, every sexually active person that one day wants to run for office. There seems to be a major class element too, right? Because the expectation is like, you're if you came into this position married, or in a committed relationship, like almost like you're expected to have like family values, um, a stable family home, you know, but once you're in office, you either have come in with someone or, or you shouldn't be dating, like you said. Um, yeah, exactly. And it's it, there's these heteronormative expectations that have been put on queer people as well. And, and, right. and that is, again, that, like I said before, that's been a challenge for me personally, navigating those, navigating those spaces as an elected official. Right. And even just undergoing this experience the last several days, like thinking about what my future looks like, assuming we do win on September 1st. I mean, what, and, and, and conversations in, in Washington and in government in general, how we police people's sex lives and, and we shame people for, for consenting behavior. Um, I just think this isn't, I know I'm running a political campaign and we're running to win an election, but well beyond September 1st, I think it's really important that we have a reckoning with, with this conversation around around sex in this country and and sex between consenting adults and within the queer community and what this means and the impact of it and and how even many people on the left that consider themselves progressive have to talk more about the language that we use in response to these there's like a real seems to be a real weaponization of survivor discourse that's being used ironically against another kind of marginalized group of people like there's there's this weird there seems to be two things going on one is that there's a polit this is a politically motivated smear and then on the other the other part of it is that there are people who would otherwise be your allies probably politically and probably support what you do who are being kind of peer pressured or kind of like bandwagonishly or knee-jerkingly just jumping on the idea that there's something problematic that there's a power dynamic and i think that these things like a lot of in lots of cases they come from good places but they've just become very sloppy and uh if we aren't more careful about them and kind of more rigorous with them we're going to wind up hurting like the very people who we think that we're standing up for or representing or empowering or championing yeah no absolutely and, and, and i want to be very clear i, I mean i welcome I welcome a conversation. I obviously welcome the Me Too movement and how it's changed our society and our government. 
And I want to honor victims and survivors and, 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 and never is it my intention to, to discount people's experiences and stories. And, and I also want to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, I am a mayor and, and I never want to make someone feel uncomfortable and never have I abused my power to, to make someone feel uncomfortable. And, and that's why my statement on Friday night acknowledged that, hey, if I have inadvertently made someone feel uncomfortable, I don't think I have. But if I have, you know, I, I do apologize for that. And, and that's very clear, but I, to talk about this inherent power dynamic between consenting adults, I think that's a conversation that will continue to be had in, in, in this country and, and, and in this society. And, it, and it's certainly not an argument alone that, that we can win before the election. This is an argument that, and a debate that I think will continue long after this election on September 1st, but something I think this country has had to talk about for for, for quite a long time. And the people I've seen the most angry about this, by the way, are uh, the queer community and survivors. Those are the two people I've seen, two groups of people. I mean, I know a lot of people who are angry about it, but those uh, people I know in those communities feel especially kind of um, outraged because they feel like both of the, I'm not speaking for all of them, obviously. I'm talking about the my friends and community, you know, from those communities. They feel very like, exploited and weaponized um and tokenized in the name of a political campaign and that they're what they you know their lives are being either um kind of pathologized or um trivialized like their trauma is being trivialized mm. yeah and that and that's incredibly unfortunate and again as i think as i think the the days continue on i think more and more information will come to light that allow people to come to their own conclusions as to why this conversation is happening in this race. And I think it does a disservice to the voters and it does a disservice to the people here in the district that should be able to expect a robust debate on, on policy and ideas. I mean, it's no accident that I'm now talking about my sex life rather than talking about why we launched this campaign over a year ago. How do you account for the change in attitude towards some sort of in the liberal political sphere? I mean, it wasn't that long ago where one of the sort of foundational ideas of being either a Democrat or, or a liberal in this country was whatever, you know, keeping people out of their, your bedroom, whatever cons consenting adults do is, is their own business. It was a major issue during the Clinton years for, for obvious reasons. Uh, and the, the, the enemy for that, that brand of politics was always the moral majority, which was always trying to police your social behaviors. Uh, and now suddenly it's like there's there's a new attitude towards sex and a kind of a phobia about it. To what do you attribute that? Uh, and what do, you, what do you think that can be done about that? Well, I think doing what I'm doing now is important. Mm -hmm. And the number of people that have reached out with relief and joy and strength that we are continuing this campaign many people that were faced with what we had to face over the weekend and i almost did i almost decided that it wasn't worth it wow over the next three weeks and you know when i listen to the words and read the words of katie hill and other people in this this country that have been shamed for being human and for having consensual sex you have to face this head on and i decided on sunday night that it was important for me to fight back and if i leave this race it would be a disservice to the movement we've built it would be a disservice to other consenting adults having sex and having a personal life. I mean, you should be able to run for office. You should be able to be a professional. You should be able to be a human and be free. 
And my statement on Sunday night, I mean, I want my freedom, but I want other people to have their freedom too. And this is something that will not end and something that I will not stop talking about when this election is over. How did you decide to stay in? Did you talk to certain people, friends, family, uh, campaign people? A lot of people. I mean, it was a roller coaster throughout the weekend because it almost became an issue of does the truth even matter at some point? When we're such when we're so fixated by tweets and what's viral and headlines and and it becomes overwhelming. But at the end of the day, I mean my family and my friends and people I don't even know from all over the country, all over the district, that I think can come to their own conclusions about what this is and and knowing who I am and and then just thinking about again, I got into this race for very real reasons at the right time at the right moment in this country. And those things are, are, are worth fighting for. I'm, you know, I'm worth fighting for the people I want to represent are worth fighting for. And, and that's why we decided to continue this campaign. And when I met with my team on Sunday night and I saw fight left in them Mm. and I wouldn't be able to do this without them and without the people around me and the people in this district that have always kept the faith and stay focused on again, the, the goals of this campaign and, and what we want to make happen. I mean, obviously part of the calculation that you must have had to go through is, you know, if I stay in the race, if I continue my, uh, continue to do this, you have to have a, a willingness to go through all kinds of things on social media and, and the internet and the, just the sheer unpleasantness of that uh, becomes part of the calculation. But, but that's also part of the calculation trying to get you out. Right. And you, you you're, you're, understanding that that's part of part of the way that they're trying to attack you is try is to is to play on your inability to to deal with all of that unpleasantness um is that what people have to do in these situations or i mean obviously yours is unique but did, did that did that calculation go through your head about how much am i willing to deal with yeah because at one point it became less about the politics and less about the campaign and for me and some of my closest friends it became about alex as a person mm-hmm and the toll it will take as a human and as an individual and whether or not it was worth it. And I mean, I've been through a lot over the last nine years, both politically and personally, you know, be it breakups, be it the death of my mom unexpectedly, be it the death of my brother unexpectedly, be it, you know, minor political challenges that have popped up over the years, working with the city council that has tried to, block progress at, at every at every moment and i have been in some pretty challenging spaces and what i've learned from that is try your best not to make drastic decisions in a moment of in a moment of pain and and fear and and that's what i kept telling myself over the weekend is i've recovered from things before both as a as a mayor and as a person and i do not want to look back and be disappointed in the decision that i made i'm a fighter the people around me are a fighter I've never given up on my city. People have told me, I mean, when I first announced my campaign for mayor, people told me to wait my turn, that we would not win this election, that you're 21, you're gay, you're too progressive. Wait your turn, run for something else. And I wouldn't be here if we listened to folks like that. And I had to channel something inside me that that gave me the strength. But again, I it, it isn't just me. There's just so many people that are by my side that, and I've also had to realize that yeah, it's my name on Facebook and my name on Twitter and my name in the headlines. But this is more than just about me. 
and, it, and it's more than just about my opponent. I mean, we're going up against a, a power structure and a powerful incumbent, and it's it's a it's a very clear example of what folks in power will do to hold on to it. One thing that I thought was amazing in the in the letter uh, that the College Democrats released, um, they talked about how uh, Mayor Morse came to College Democrats in Massachusetts events and got to know our membership and then sought out students that he met our, at our events privately on social media in a manner widely understood by our generation to indicate intimacy. I mean, that, 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 that felt like such a remarkable passage where they were essentially saying that there was something um, untoward even about communicating on the internet. I mean, uh, what do you think that says about how phobic people have become about interpersonal relations? Well, I would also acknowledge that it seems very likely that the, the email to me and the letter and their statements were written by attorneys to make them sound as salacious as possible. Right. And number two, even in the statement that you just read, there was, there was not even an allegation that the messages themselves were inappropriate, just the sheer fact of there being a message, whether it says hi or, or something else. And so it's just interesting because I've never, I've been to one college Democrats event yeah. since I launched my campaign for Congress. I have never hooked up with someone I met at a College Democrats event. Have I messaged a College Democrat and thanked them for moderating a panel and told them that it was good to see you today? I have. And those were consensual, friendly conversations. And so it, come, it came as quite a surprise to me that those were now being used against me in an allegation that this was somehow making someone uncomfortable. And, and as I said before, if, if I did make someone uncomfortable, then I, I regret that. I, I, it's never my intention to make someone uncomfortable, but the sheer fact of communicating with someone on social media, on Instagram, I mean, as a mayor, the form of communication, I mean, I mean, as a millennial and as a mayor, I mean, I have constituents and residents and friends that inbox me about their recycling and their snow pickup on Facebook messenger and on Instagram DM. And I mean, it's, there are so many different modes of communication today. And, and so I, again, that statement I thought was, 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 I don't know how to describe it. I, I thought it was interesting because even in even in that statement, there is no specific allegation of anything inappropriate. I, I mean, it, it, to me, it read like basically he's gay and he said hello to somebody once. <laughs> I mean, it was it was like that's the accusation was that absurd that essentially the, the they were basically accusing you of conversing with somebody and trying to imply that there was something untoward uh in that i don't know it, it was it was amazing they also made it sound like you were like a serial attender like uh constantly hanging out at this at the college at college dem events like it definitely had this very like i mean it was so vague and there's so much passive voice and it was so confusing it was like one person was accusing it seems like they couldn't even find one person who was saying that you abuse your power because apparently one person who had something, some kind of interaction with you, dating interaction with you, didn't know you were mayor. So they had to then quote other people who know you're mayor, but who didn't have an interaction with you to put it together as an abuse yeah, of power. Yeah, they, they cobbled it. It was like a Frank, Frankenstein's monster of an accusa accusation almost. Yeah, that's so interesting to me because I've been to one college Democrats event since I became a candidate for Congress last October. Um, and and this, this fantasy that I, I'm like begging to be at these events. Right. I have, um, they've invited me. And when they invite me, I, I attend. And, and again, I've never, I've never met up or hooked up with a, with a, with a student that I've met at a College Democrats event. I, I've seen some people say that they, that, that they, you know, some people who have said some, who came out against you online, 
um, a law professor says she regrets it and now thinks that it was a smear. Has anyone else kind of come around? Yeah, I think, uh, I, yeah, I think, I mean, Jen Tom, it was good to see her tweet yeah. earlier today. Um, and, you know, I think her language was problematic in her original tweet because she included language around, around, I hope he gets help, the help he needs. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I need psychological help for having sex with other men. Right. And, and so that was incredibly problematic. But to your question, sorry, I, I just had to say that because it, I, I think that is a great example of, of such dangerous problematic language that is, right. is used in public spheres that is incredibly damaging to members of our community, closeted or not. Yeah. And, and yeah, I mean, even before this article last night, I mean, every single elected official in the district that have endorsed me have stuck by me since Friday night. Oh, great. I mean, organization after organization. The Mass Nurses Association met on Monday night, reaffirmed their support. National Indivisible reaffirmed their support. Elect a local elected officials reaffirming their support. The Progressive Coalition here in the district reaffirming their support. Even before coverage has continued to come out that provide more light on, on these allegations. And so, again, I, I, I will let people come to their own conclusions, but I think there is a general consensus that it is certainly suspicious. Last question that, that I have is, uh, you know, I've talked to some politicians who started their political careers uh, early in the past. D did you consult with any other politicians about how do you have a personal life when you're growing up in the public eye? In other words, you, you're, you, you're a mayor at age 22. Essentially, before you, you really have a life, you, got, you have to do all this in, in public. What are the guidelines for that? And, and did, did you get any advice from anybody about that? And what what do you think that politicians should do in your position? I've never I've never um, received like formal advice. You know, it's not as if I'm like I called a consultant and said, "Tell me how I should have a sex life." And right, time, right. I think when people think about politicians, when they think about mayors, I mean, they think of you know straight old white men married to married to women with kids or grandkids. And I mean, I have always looked different than a mayor that people are used to and when they think about elected officials. And I think it's important that we have a government that reflects like the lived experience and the people that we represent. And so, I mean, I likely wouldn't be having this interview or, or wouldn't have been dealing with this issue the last several days if I had gone to office in some heteronormative relationship with at this expectation that I should somehow be in a relationship before you become mayor and, and fit this fantasy of what people wanna see in, in relationships. And I made a decision early on that I would not hide who I am. I would not go back in the closet. I would not pretend that I am not human. And, and I think that's incredibly important. I mean, I, I, I'm not gonna, not gonna pretend or, or stop myself from, from being fully human in, in this world. I mean, life is too short. And I realize that I am a mayor of my hometown, but that in no way should mean that I do not deserve to have a personal life and consensual relationships with, with other people. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Katie, do you have anything else you yeah, want to ask? No, uh, anything, any kind like, of uh, words you want to make sure that people hear or know about you or your campaign or maybe like the things you'd be talking about if, if it weren't for this stuff? <laughs> although it is, I mean, it, what's cool about it is it does give you a chance to talk about, although, I mean, it's, I'm sure, frustrating and, and you wanted to hear, talk about issues and that's what voters want to hear about. It is like the silver lining, I guess, of this is that you are making a really important 
points um, and communicating a really important message for for people um, about kind of you know pride well, right just by not dropping out yeah yeah just by not dropping out and also like I I can't get over just the fact like sexual preference aside or gender identity aside like I would I I would hate to have to just talk about my sex life so I uh, that in itself is like a and as a single person, I thank you because I think there's a lot of like coupleism or something or single phobia. I'm just going to throw that out there um, because, again, the expectation is like you either get in there already married or in a committed relationship or you're done or it's over. Uh, good luck. Um, but, yeah, anything that you want to to make sure that you people here related to maybe issues yeah. or. No, I know. And I, and I appreciate that. And, and obviously not intentional, but still happy to talk about my values and. And I hope that some people listening, this is helpful for yeah, and sure what is. we're talking about. And, and I would just, you know, tell people we're, we're now less than three weeks until the primary on September 1st. And I haven't talked about my sex life throughout the entire campaign, um, except the last several days. And we've been talking a lot about, again, the issues important to people here in Western Mass and across the country. And I would encourage people to check out alexmorrisforcongress.com. I mean, we need resources, obviously, to fight back to make sure that we have what we need to to win this election on September 1st. We have volunteers in, in all 50 states that have been phone banking and talking to voters across the district. And so we just encourage people to pay attention. And, and, and believe me, people are paying more attention to this race than they were than they were last week. And it gives us an opportunity to talk about what we're fighting for uh, unrelated to this direct conversation. And I think it's important. And I think Democrat or Republican, if you've been in Washington for 30, 40 years, I mean, your time is up. It's a different time than it was in 1989. We have different challenges that need different solutions. And I'm not just criticizing the Republican Party, but criticizing the Democratic Party that are beholden to corporate and special interests that have done nothing to fundamentally change who our government is working for. And I think people deserve honest, real people in office at every level. And frankly, nothing changes if nothing changes. And this is a real opportunity to send a message to the Democratic Party and to the DC establishment that we want real people that are honest and transparent and are imperfect in office at every level. And so I, I, you know, I thank you two for the opportunity to chat about this race and um, the opportunity to talk about my life to some extent um, and give folks a, um, a lens in, in, in which we're, we're running this campaign. Terrific. Well, good yeah. luck with the race. Yeah, and thank uh, you so much. This is great. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, no, thank you both a lot. Have a good day. Take care. Bye. So that was great. Yeah, it was really great. He's really impressive. He is uh, really impressive. And you know, we didn't get into it, but his his whole campaign to to remake Holyoke as a marijuana capital because yeah. it used to be the paper city once right. upon a time. Now right. he wants to make it the rolling paper city. Yeah, very good. Um, you know, he's very put together, very positive, uh, and to think that something like this could could even potentially derail a career like that is just so upsetting. So hopefully it doesn't happen. So uh, anyway, but that was really interesting, a really interesting conversation. Uh, thanks to yeah. Alex Morphs uh, for coming on. And um, I have three weeks to move to Massachusetts, register there and vote for uh, Alex Morse. That's right. You do. Yeah. Are you going to do that? Yeah, I think I am. Excellent. Excellent. I'm definitely going to do some phone banking for him. Well, uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, and oh, and we last, have a last thing, sorry. You're on notice, media. You're on notice. Because everyone's reporting on this in a really unfair way. Like, despite allegations, he's, he keeps on going. No, that's not the way you should report on it. Just, re you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I mean, there's no reason not to be like, uh, 
hack committee chair launches yeah, exactly. bullshit allegations. You right. know what I mean? That's what, yeah, we should rewrite the headlines. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. But that was a great conversation, and we have another one coming up next week. So please yeah. tune in and don't uh, don't listen to David Axelrod. And thanks for listening. We'll we'll see you next week. <laughs> The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.